Healing can happen when people share their stories. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair. Experience their journey through their legal process and beyond. This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Trauma Trial Transformation from Los Angeles, California. Have you ever met someone and had kind of an instant connection and then you're like, hmm, I think there's kind of something going on here. To me, I call that an energetic connection. And my guest and I today, I have to say, are on the same wavelength with a very important mission. She was born in Jamaica, then raised in, believe it or not, my neck of the woods in Ohio, She went to Bowling Green University in Ohio, graduated law school from Washington University in St. Louis, and now resides in Colorado. During her four-year tenure as a deputy district attorney in Denver, she observed difficulties that victims encountered as they were forced to navigate the opaque criminal justice system while trying to heal their trauma. Sound familiar? Well, let me tell you, that's called the same wavelength. So she is founded Ray of Justice in April of 2022, which focuses on victims' rights laws. She's written many articles on this subject, and she brings trauma-informed approach to the forefront of the courtroom, which we've discussed on this podcast before, so she is a perfect fit. She works in victims' rights law, family law, and criminal law. I want to welcome Rachel Robinson. Welcome, Rachel. I'm thrilled to talk to you today. Hi, Juliet. Thank you for having me. That's really amazing. I know you have a long list of accomplishments as well. We have uh, so much time, so we'll talk about where everybody can find that. But I want to dive right in. Can, as a prosecutor, can you explain the types of trauma that you encountered in your years of being a prosecutor? Well, when I started, we all start in the same place here in Denver. We started misdemeanor court. And um, misdemeanors, they range from all the crimes up to I mean, we stop at at murder. I mean, we don't do murders. Murders are very higher crimes. But we will deal with domestic violence, um, drug crimes, down to thefts. Even traffic violations can rise to misdemeanors. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question in regards to the trauma that I saw, um, the category of case that really always was my category of case that I would go in on were child abuse cases. Mm -hmm. And... And one of the things that, and every prosecutor has this, they have their case. That's like their type of case. And so what I observed very much was, you know, mothers trying to protect their children. Um, It was usually separated families and the children would be being abused by um, a co-parent. Most of the time it was the father. um, Mm. That doesn't have to always be the case, I'm sure, in reality. But that was just the cases that came across my desk. And, um, and, and the trauma that you'll see is, um, is the children. They are, they're scared at first. They don't want to talk to me at first. Um, but one of the things that I saw, which was an amazing thing to witness 
is that, you know, I'd have a couple meetings with these children and always maybe after the third meeting or so, um, we'd be talking about how the case would go. And I would ask them, what do you want to see happen in this case? It's up to you. Mm. you know, they've met with me. They've talked to me about it. They, they've started to get warmed up. And more often than not, they would say, I don't want to see him again. I don't want to be around my father again. Um, mm. And they just needed a reprieve to heal and to be mm -hmm. away. And the other thing that would happen is after I would tell them that um, I can possibly do that for you, is they would start to glow. This smile would come across their face and they would realize that they now had this power that they could wield against the person who had oppressed and abused them for so many years. Mm. And that they now had the power to dictate how the rest of their life was going to look. And it wow. did not so, have to involve that person anymore. Wow, yeah. that's that's so powerful. It's interesting because uh, it seems like we're getting we're uh, the podcast is getting a little bit of a pattern on children, um, not intentionally, but I'm finding it fascinating because it is reliving trauma, which is you know what we talk about, and then you have to go into the courtroom, which is another dramatic layer, right? So, how did you? In the prosecutor's office, did they give you tools to do that? I mean, pre your pre your firm now, did the prosecutors give you any tools to to deal with that with through like therapy or support or anything like that? So one of the so basically under the Victim Rights Act, every victim of a violent crime is assigned a victim advocate, and this tends to be someone who hopefully has history in dealing with um, serving that population, victims, people escaping these types of situations. The only thing that the DA's office really would do would be to provide them a list of therapists that they could potentially choose from. And then we offer to finance it. So the um, Victims Rights Fund, the Victim Services Fund, they will then finance a certain number of therapy sessions. Um, this is good that they're offering that. Yeah. Um, it's huge yeah, for definitely. a criminal justice system that's not always very right. humane or really geared towards victims at all, right. notwithstanding the fact that we only have crimes because of victims, which anthropology, that's another conversation. Um, but at <laughs> least we offer them that. Um, right. However, what we would find is what I found was that when we're in trauma brain, we don't have the capacity to necessarily make those decisions. There's decision right. paralysis. And so handing a list to a victim and saying, hey, choose from this who you want to talk to, we'll pay for it, isn't always holistic and as helpful as we would hope that it would be. But to answer your question, we can go into what I do later, but to answer your question, that is what they offer is those the, the a list of potential therapeutic services. They don't necessarily have to choose from that list. If they already have a therapist or someone they want to work with, Victims Fund will will pay for that up to a certain number of sessions. Interesting. And so are victims advocates attorneys or are they just uh, trained people in this arena? Exactly. And they're not attorneys. And, and not that's, attorneys. A, that's a disadvantage, I believe, to victims. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. I was wondering, because do victims' rights apply to family members? Or are these just scenarios? Because these scenarios obviously have a ripple effect. Is it or is it only for the victim? Great question. And the Victim Rights Act does cover family members as well. 
for purposes of certain types of rights to speak and rights to be heard and motions that can be filed, it really is personal to the actual human victim that's been harmed. Uh, but their mm-hmm. family is always welcome to to be there and be supportive and be present for meetings, et cetera, particularly when they are children, obviously. And also mm-hmm. under the under the law here in Colorado, uh, a victim can appoint anyone to be their representative. And so this is why mm-hmm. they have a right to an attorney like me, a victim rights attorney now to go in and I stand in the stead of the victim and I exercise all of those rights that they might have to make certain arguments in court, file certain motions that they don't even know they have a right to do. Obviously, mm, I have some great. insider knowledge and get things right. done for them. Um, but they, I get to speak on their behalf. They also can speak when when they want to. I make sure that they are heard, um, but the families are all included. Now, when a victim is deceased, okay, sorry, we have that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, then it would be, you know, the next of kin who kind of steps up to be the victim for purposes of the legal case. And then, of course, the family around that can also support that person in being informed. But the reason why it needs to be one human person, one natural person, is just because then the district attorney's office, the judge, the police, everyone knows, like, who's the point of contact to keep informed about the case and enforce those rights that they have under the Victim Rights Act. But they're not going to willfully exclude family if they're also a part of those conversations. Interesting. That's that's very interesting. I mean, because you know, as you're saying, you know, most people would know, and we don't know what we don't know, right? So it's really difficult sometimes. But I, I also heard you talk about the fact that in one of your interviews, you mentioned a vic- vicarious trauma. Can you define what that means? I thought that was interesting. Yes, vicarious trauma is the trauma that, you know, us other actors in the criminal justice system experience as we seek to provide justice to victims and kind of rebalance the scales for the community for the harm that has been done. And it just stems from our humanity. It stems from, Mm -hmm. you know, people do really mess up things to each other. And to have to sit through that and hold space for Mm -hmm. others as they come through the criminal justice system, defense attorneys will experience it too. They're hearing what their client has done, et cetera, and the loss that their family is suffering of a defendant. It's just all of us within the criminal justice space. We Mm -hmm. we experience that trauma vicariously. Vicarious literally just means like through another. Mm -hmm. We're experiencing secondhand in layman's terms and and it can affect us. Yeah. Well, that's, I kind of feel like sometimes that's why I oddly felt comfortable in this arena as a persuasion strategist because I've had childhood trauma. And so sometimes it either made me feel okay or it didn't affect me as much as it it did because I'd already had mine. And so I found that such an interesting statement that, you know, that there is, it's just a tough situation for everybody. So, um, what made you leave the prosecutor's office? And, and the reason I want to ask this question is kind of two questions in this question. Because <laughs> I always thought ex-prosecutors, the ones I've worked with, make really great defense attorneys or really great advocates because they understand both sides of the aisle and they're very empathetic. Like, do you find that to be true now that you've left? Does it, does it, did it start to build and make a difference? Or like, what made you leave? I will say I will comment on the defense attorney part. One of the things that defense attorneys have is this innate drive and understanding of the importance of upholding human and civil rights. Mm -hmm. And I have actually partnered with defense attorneys in certain cases, which sounds 
antithetical to being a victim rights attorney because defendants victimize people, right? But we, but in certain cases, it makes sense because in order for this system to change, we do need pressure from both sides. We need mm-hmm. a strong voice for defendants and we need a strong voice for victims. This system will mm-hmm. not become more humane and more just if we're not having both of those voices putting pressure on this system to make it more humane and live up to the actual values that it purports to uphold. Okay. And so in that regard, that's great. It's absolutely true. And so in the expertise realm, yes, a prosecutor would be a great defense attorney because we understand the procedural issues. We have relationships Mm -hmm. in the district attorney's office and with the courts, and we have this certain level of credibility Okay. It wasn't for me just because as much as I respect what defense attorneys have to do, it's not in line with sort of my journey to becoming an attorney and necessarily what I could see myself being able to do um, based on sort of the things that we have to, a defense attorney has to stand next to someone in the midst of certain crimes, certain things. It was very organic the way I became a victim rights attorney. People knew I was a district attorney for years, my neighbors, my friends, and they were sending victims to me from all around the country and asking them to, you know, they were asking me, how do I understand the system? And so I would explain them. I couldn't represent them. I couldn't do much. I was already having, you know, it's it's a conflict. But I had guided victims through the system for many years before I ended up leaving the district attorney's office. And so those referrals and, and, and people, and even like I said, defense attorneys send victims to me when it makes sense and and we'll work together. So other attorneys who do family law who have victims will send victims to me because we have the criminal side that intersects with family law. So it was very organic the way that I ended up being one of the very few victim rights attorneys in this state and country. Um, Mm -hmm. Defense work is not necessarily for me in the bigger scheme of things. I have had to defend a victim who was wrongfully accused. She took the fall for domestic violence that happened. That does happen. I was going to ask you if you've ever had to do that. That's interesting. I was able to secure a dismissal for her. Yes, it did happen. Um, it does happen. And, and, and so there, and, and so in that regard, I will help on the criminal defense side, but in regards to helping the defendants, I, it's not for me now, why I left the district attorney's office. And that's interesting because your latest episode talks about this. It talks about a young man who was wrongfully convicted of a crime. And I left the district attorney's office because here in Denver, I was ordered to wrongfully prosecute someone. I was ordered to keep a case open when I learned from the police that we did not have the evidence to prove it. Mm. And I was not willing to do that. And I was retaliated against when I reported and resisted that order. And so I ended up leaving proudly. Okay. Uh, it was very disruptive to my life, of course, my identity. Uh-huh. I didn't know if I was uh-huh. going to be a dis- uh, an attorney anymore. Attorney I didn't know. Right. I said, this is crazy, you know, but then I had to remind myself, this is why I became a prosecutor. Actually, when I knew that I would go into criminal law, I had 10 years of academic experience and understanding of like politics, comparative politics, public administration, ethics, um, all the societal factors that lead to a lot of the issues that we see in the criminal, all the issues that we see in the criminal justice right. system right now. And I went in knowing that I was going to change it. 
I was going to be the right. one person to change it. <laughs> yeah. And I decided to work for Beth yep. McCann, the first woman DA in Denver. She hired me as one of her earliest hires. And I'm going to, we're going to do this together. And, and I just knew I could take on the whole system and do something great. And I did. I created a lot of ripples within that office. I did shift a lot of perspectives on things. And I do appreciate that that office in general tends to dedicate dollars to having an alternative way to prosecute crimes. However, I was so disappointed. And that's why it was such a twilight zone when I was ordered to do these illegal things. And I went to the leadership and said, this is wrong. And I ended up being retaliated against. And so actually it was the police um, who took care of my cares, the fraternal order of police that paid for a lot of my care as I rehabilitated myself from that um, and got back on my feet. And again, with realizing I don't want to work in a compromising situation anymore. I'm going to do my own thing. And then immediately it just blossomed right. into the ray of justice. That's awesome. So, um, so I just want to clarify before we move on to the next subject, for those that are listening, you have a uh, victim's right attorney, which is not a prosecutor at the same time. If you needed to go to civil court, you could actually represent them as a, in a civil trial, correct? Absolutely correct, yes. Yeah, okay. So I was just going back to like the OJ trial where most people were like, okay, wait a minute, what's the difference between the criminal side and the civil side? Because you can file a civil suit as well as a criminal lawsuit. And that's where I just wanted people to understand kind of where the difference is. So moving on a little bit, like, so how has your witness prep changed since going through this and understanding this and 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 how has that changed with your witnesses today? And we'll, we'll get into what you do here in just a minute. But in your mindset, what, how has it changed when it comes to empathy and compassion? Has it grown or is it, has, it just, uh, has it always been this way? The empathy and the compassion has always been there for victims and for community safety and for defendants as well. And one of the things as a prosecutor, and that has to do also with my history too. You and I, you have, we have that in common where we have a history in the court and we have a history with our own personal things. I've gone through my own abuse and victimization um, after being raised pretty well in a great community and then kind of losing that and having to go through these years of, of domestic violence and addiction and all these other things that I had to overcome. And so when I became a prosecutor, I'm able to see my reflection in the people that are moving through the system, um, particularly mm-hmm. the victims. And so the the empathy was always there. The um, the compassion, the extra time that I always would make sure that I could give to the victims who needed it or asked for it or wanted it. Um, often, vic- sometimes victims don't want to participate, and there's an element of trauma informed care that where we respect that. Okay, and so I've always had right. that, even as a prosecutor, in a way that other prosecutors might not. And so um, that has to do with my background as well. Um, I, to to give an example, several of the victims that I even worked, one of them ended up being working with me briefly as I started this law firm. I mean, and several of them had referred people to me to help them understand the system before I even branched mm-hmm. out on my own. So these are the relationships that I formed with um, with the with the victims in those cases, and knowing that this is the direction I should go. So that empathy right. has always been there. The difference is that as a prosecutor, I have to balance the rights of the defendant and the right the community as a whole when right. i look at what's an appropriate recommendation to make in a case i'll give a quick right. example um you know 
very vague example. It's just basically the way it plays out is a victim will feel very wronged and they're right to. They've been harmed by someone. Uh, maybe it's domestic violence and they're done with this person and they want the book thrown at them. Okay. I get the case and it's a first offense because yes, there's mm. a whole history of abuse. And I know that. And I, and I would bring that up at trial. However, because it's the first time it's actually reported and this woman's ready to leave, it's a right. first offense. And under right. that, the rubric of kind of what the, the guidelines that were given and the maximum penalties for that type of crime are just much lower or completely different than what a victim would want or expect when they are ready to stand up and say enough is enough. And I want I want to rebalance all the things that I've lost over these years. And then I have to kind of balance that with 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 what actually I can get done it might be probation. It might be 30, right. 90 days in jail. And this person's like, yeah, but I suffered for 90 years, you know? And so it's just, right. Right. So that's the difference is now I have more freedom to really speak up and advocate solely for what the victim wants. Because I have that district attorney background and the training and the understanding, right. I can negotiate that with district attorneys in a way that, that in the lingo that they understand, and they will take certain cases more seriously because there is me on it, because there's a victim right. rights attorney on it. And they also know that they cannot pull the wool over this victim eyes. There's no manipulating them into just going along with the plea. And then the victim agrees because this is a person in authority. It's the district attorney. You do what they say. You have right. to trust them. Um, we can get sort of better outcomes, but there's still some of that balancing. Anyway, to your question, that is something that prosecutors have to balance. As a victim rights attorney, I can go in hard on just what my clients want and what the victims want, and I can be a voice for that in a way that, as I said before, the system needs. We don't have that counterbalance, and I'm able to right. provide that. So you're so you're really representing the victim to the prosecutor. That's what I want to make clear for for our uh, listeners is that you're actually coming in and representing the victim so that they understand what the prosecutor is doing. Is that what you're saying? That is absolutely a huge part of it. It's educating oh, yeah. my clients on the actual system, interpreting and translating what detectives and prosecutors are saying inside and outside of the court, helping them really understand what's going on in the most in the terms that they will understand based on where they are in their trauma and based on what they want right. out of the situation. Okay. It's not right. that they don't understand right. the words, the words are in English, but they might not always understand the consequences of certain decisions or what the prosecutor is right. really saying. So I illuminate the bigger picture so that they can then in a very intelligent and empowered way, make their decision on if they agree with what the prosecutor is doing. Not only that, but there are certain motions and actions that I can file and do in court that a victim can do, but they might not know. For example, right. motions to amend protection orders. Okay. I've seen where judges have lowered protection orders to allow abusive fathers to have access to their children. And the mom's like, I don't know what to do. This just happened without me. And I've entered on the case and gotten that reverse. So now we're not having contact with the children. Okay. Under the Victim Rights Act. Um, right. I've also, you know, you see where 
uh, restitution. Okay. I, I laid the foundation in a, in a case. Restitution is financial award that a victim can get in a criminal case. If they've had a mm-hmm. financial loss, that's directly the cause of the crime that they've been subject to. And I've had to file those documents and make sure that the prosecutor's on them. And I've had prosecutor recent past who was not keeping track of the restitution requests. And I had to go mm. in and work with the restitution tech in their office, make sure that things were filed. And had I had needed to, I would have been able to argue that myself because the vic- you know, she can do that. There's sure. nothing stopping an attorney for the victim to go in and argue it. Um, luckily, uh, we were able to go ahead and, and get what we needed to get done with the prosecutor. And my client one a type of restitution request that otherwise it's pretty creative and one of would not have been one. I mean, she had moved to a new apartment that moved out of her home, had to move to a new apartment on the basis of this crime. The rent was higher than her mortgage and mm. utilities and all these. This is a very creative way to interpret the restitution statute. And the argument mm. I had was that she's entitled to that difference in the cost. Well, she won. Mm. Okay. So these are the things that an attorney working on it can help with and victims don't know, but a prosecutor may not tell you because they think their job ends with the conviction. So to, to, uh, well, before I go, before I go there, one question I don't want to forget to ask, how do you prep a victim or witness that has to testify in front of their perpetrator? Like how, how do you, you know, cause that, you know, how long do you follow them after the encounter? Like what, what is your step-by-step there? Absolutely. So even as a prosecutor, I had to prep a lot of witnesses. And, um, you know, often prosecutors will say, oh, we don't have time, etc. I've always made time. I do think it's important to make that time. If it's a Zoom call, if they're coming in, and I always send outlines of the questions that I'm going to ask. So that's step one. I send outlines of the questions I'm going to ask. Okay. I also will provide them with a copy of the police report, just their statements in the police report or any written statements that they made so that they can review those and remember. And I let them Mm -hmm. know, you don't have to remember this verbatim. If you're on the stand and you don't remember something, just say you don't remember. I can refresh your recollection. Mm -hmm. I'm walking up to you with the statement. You look at it. You put it down when you're refreshed and you look back at me and you tell me, what did you say on that day? So that takes the pressure off. Another thing that I've always told witnesses and victims and continue to now is that the whole case does not rely upon your testimony. Yeah, that's great. Particularly with victims, they will always think like, I'm doing this. This is me. And in a lot of ways that can be empowering. And yes, this is you. And yes, you've waved this powerful magic wand to get retribution, to get justice for what you've been through. However, there are many other people who are here to support your testimony that are going to also be adding pieces to the story, to the situation, to the facts for the jury. And ultimately, it's the job of the prosecutor to prove the case. So do not carry that on you. Just say say it. Just say what happened to you and and let it be that. Let it be a conversation. And that's another thing that I always prepare witness for as a prosecutor. And so I've encouraged prosecutors now when I'm like, hey, we're prepping my client. These are the things I've told them. And so then that prosecutor, if they didn't have that sort of soft skill in the past, I ask them to bring that into dealing with my clients now. Let them know it's a conversation, approach it as a conversation. I've let them know they're not the only one. And I help the prosecutor prepare actually 
to prepare my client in a way that's not overwhelming or scary for either one of them and builds trust between both of them. Right. You know, how, how do you how do you handle when people say, because I get this a lot too, it's like, who's going to pay for it? Like, you know, it, it it's when people don't have, you know, a lot of times victims won't have a lot of money or they don't have insurance and things like that. So how, how do you approach that scenario? Because I, I know for myself, I'm always asked that question, well, you've got this great service, who's going to pay for it? Well, my clients pay for their services. I don't, I'm not, I don't really buy into the idea that victims don't have money. First of all, they come in mm-hmm. groups of families. Not only that, but crime. And this is, I think, something that everyone's conditioned to believe. And this actually is also p- not good for the criminal justice system because it causes victims to have even less of a voice. Crimes transcend socioeconomic and racial lines. Okay. Oftentimes, actually, you will see the most powerful women, the most outspoken, the strongest ones being the most abused because we speak up. We're a threat to a man's fragile ego, whatever. Okay. These are the ones who, and they're also the ones who will file the charges. Okay. So Mm -hmm. my clients, the ones who have been attracted to me are all professionals, college educated or on their way through college. They have children. Um, they have, they are leaving this person and they're dealing with the abuse in that regard because they're strong and they've stood up. So my clients pay that. Now here's the thing I'm working towards under Colorado. Uniquely, the victim rights is enshrined in the Colorado constitution. And so Hmm. one of the goals that I have is after I'm done with what I'm doing, not only whether I'm working on my textbooks, I will be teaching a new generation of victim rights attorneys, but we will also have enshrined the right to counsel just as defendants Mm do. Okay. Not every state Mm -hmm. has enshrined the right to victims' rights in the constitution, but if we have Hmm. victim rights here in the constitution, and then statutorily, they have a right to appoint whoever they want to be their representative. And in essence, we connect that. They have a right to counsel. And I actually right. believe that the courts at some point in the government will need to provide that option to victims so that they can have an educated and empowered voice in this system that balances that and honors that just as much as that of the defendant. Well, you know, that's brilliant because, uh, you know, one of the things that's always bothered me when I go into, especially in defense cases, and, um, you know, I, I, I've i seen where you get, you have a you have a defense attorney and you have a defendant, right? And then you have a prosecutor. The prosecutor's budget is the taxpayer's money, <laughs> right? So, they're, they just, they get to use state money. Well, this defendant only can go so far because they can only afford this attorney for so much. And I've seen evidence go out the window just because they didn't have the money to explore it. or the, But the de- prosecutors, because they have the tax dollars. So I, I think that is so brilliant because it should be fair. It should be fair on both sides in order to have some representation that whether you can afford it or not, you get a fair trial, right? So that's that's really amazing. I'm, that's, that's very, very amazing. I, I love it, Rachel. That's really great. So well, the defense attorneys, I will tell you, public defenders that are state-funded, what I have found as a district attorney here in Denver, now my experience is limited. I know lots of district attorneys around the state as well, and I think they would agree. They're uh, fabulous. De- public defenders, because they could go elsewhere and make a lot more money, They and they have strict supervision by being supervised, right. and they have relationships in the courtroom and credibility that they've built up 
and they're true believers. That's what we call them. True believers. Mm -hmm. I was a true believer prosecutor and changing. You have true believer public defenders. They care about holding the system accountable and defending their clients. And so they actually can sometimes be the best attorneys um, for defendants. And, um, and I've seen defense attorneys that are paid for often, maybe, maybe they're not the best. They don't have any supervision. They're getting quick money. So sometimes, you know, it just depends on the case. Um, If I ever got in trouble, I'd probably liquidate and get a public defender, but that's just me. Um, Right. I just know them here in Denver. They're fabulous. But um, anywho, well, and that's I mean, why I think having that infrastructure for victims as well could be just as right. passionate and zealous and meaningful for victims as well. Right. Because I, I mean, I, like I said, there's a lot of great public defenders, don't get me wrong. But to really take a case as far as it needs to go, you have to have the money to do it sometimes. And I've just seen it where it comes down to, you know, just private investigator or, uh, you know, taking the DNA to a certain level. And it's just always been interesting to me to kind of watch that process of like, okay, how far do we get to go? Because where's the money come from? Because I, I know there's state funding. I mean, there was, there's been funding coming in cases I've had before to help pay, but the balance doesn't, has just never seemed, uh, it's never seemed truly balanced, but I want to move on to, to where you are today and, and your amazing healing. And uh, so can you give me an example where you've seen the more holistic approach be successful for a victim? It's difficult to give one example because it's so infused in what I do and how I approach my clients. That well, Talk to me about that. Talk to me how you do that. So from day one, we are meeting and we are talking, obviously we're talking about the case. We're talking about legal issues, what's going on. And then I immediately wrap them into the healing session. So they get to access the healing sessions that are recorded and they get to watch those. And, um, and not only that, but through our conversations and the way that I speak about their growth and their, and what I expect from them and what I need from them and what I offer, um, it very naturally turns into a conversation that goes beyond this legal case. It goes into who, how are we evolving out of this victimhood so that our life at the end of this looks completely different than when it started? How did we get in this position in the first place? And how do we take accountability for that to never find ourselves in this situation again? Right. And the, those conversations, when I first opened this, they happen pretty organically just because of the person I am and, and the things I've overcome and what I bring to those conversations. And that's why I realized actually that it would be wise and important for me to bring in people who could share that healing journey and kind of guide right. my clients through that because I have to be their attorney. It's not necessarily appropriate for me to also be their healing guide, but they right. would see me as that very quickly because of the things I've overcome and what I bring to the conversation. And right. so it's just been embedded in the DNA of the ray of justice since the beginning because it's who I am. It's how I've always approached legal work. We cannot understand the people going through this system if we don't understand them as people and we can't properly guide them and we can't properly understand their goals and advocate for them as attorneys if we don't know who they are and where they're coming exactly. from 
and where they're trying to get to. And so that has always been a, uh, just embedded in what I do. And it's also why I do flat fees. So we talked about payment. I do flat fees Mm -hmm. because I'm not nickeling and diming every single conversation. My clients need to text me in the middle of the night sometimes. And if it's between, if it's on a certain night where, where we can, I will respond, you know, and they need to have access and and they ruminate and they have these things they're going through. And so I created the healing portal and brought in providers for that so that the questions coming to me would be more appropriate and geared towards the legal case. But they've always seen me as this healer, as a person who could, who could provide another level of wisdom that goes beyond just what's strategic in my criminal case. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's great. Yeah. That's great. Cause that, that's, that's sometimes I, I never realized like in my position, how often that was happening for me to, that they were bringing me in during windows prep. And I, I have a couple really, Pointed stories of, you know, they just were falling down and no one was really listening because they were so focused on the legal side of it. So that's why I knew we had this energetic connection because you and I have the same goal. And um, it's one of the things I'm working on with some product right now, too, as well, is that they can get through the healing part of it. But when, when, what advice would you give to someone who has become a victim and just doesn't know where to turn? Like, where would you, because you're in Colorado, not everyone's in Colorado. So where would you tell them to start? Um, every state has that I have seen so far, it has, um, typically has a wonderful network of nonprofit organizations that will provide services to survivors of domestic violence. And that service can look like, um, helping them safety plan. That service can look like actually giving them financial emergency assistance to get out on a temporary basis until they can find support through their family and friends to get them out permanently all the way up to having free legal help to get a civil protection order or break their lease, get a letter written to break their lease so they can get away from the person who's Mm -hmm. abusing them. Okay. So that's a first place to look. Um, Another thing though, that I have, I do offer is my legal concierge service. And this is because there's no victim rights attorneys in the country. There's very few, Um, One of the things that has happened is I've gotten requests from all over the country. And so I have a legal concierge service. Well, I will help to connect clients to customers, members of the legal concierge service to those appropriate nonprofits. Um, I will also connect them to attorneys if there happens to be any attorneys in the area doing anything resembling victim rights um, or family law. We always intersect with family law. I will vet those attorneys and tell them what's needed and make sure that they are trauma-informed, victim-centered, and I will feel comfortable to send my concierge clients to them. And so I can also be a particular resource, even if you're not in Colorado, um, in that regard to connect you to what you need there, but those would where you those would be where you'd start. Um, when you're looking for an attorney, um, you know, compare their reviews to Avo, Justia, Find Law. These are websites that people will review attorneys. So if you are looking for someone to advocate for you in the family law side, or you cannot find victim rights attorneys, and you have a family law issue, just check the reviews and see if they, you know, serve mothers and, and parents and fathers well. And that's a good way to right. discover that. That's great information. Thank you for that. Um, so I love one of the statements you made on your website, which I really 
I just connected with so quickly is that in the ray of justice, we believe that true justice includes healing and restoration. I was like, oh, I could not have put that in better words. I've been on this horn for for a long time, but I finally got the podcast off the ground and some other things because I I do believe it has to include healing because it's not just pre and during, it's got to be post. So, you know, I always ask my, my uh, guests this question, is healing a choice? It is. It is a choice in the sense that um, people can often feel comfortable in their victim role. They often can decide that that learned helplessness, that um, attention, that 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 acceptance that they seem to get as victims is um, fills something in them that they they don't want to let go of. And they're worried mm-hmm. that if they actually heal, everyone will go away. And their identity. It's their identity. Right. Exactly. And so healing is the choice and healing is the choice to create the new identity um, of who you're going to be now after. And I think you and I talked about, it, it's actually a remembrance mm-hmm. actually of who they were before. Right to come back even better and bigger than that. And not being around a lot of people when you're a strong, healed, goal-oriented, self-assured person is quite Mm. all right. We don't need crowds (laughs) in our ear, dumping their problems on us, like trying to steer us in directions that don't work for us, that confidence. Right. And that, so we realize as we go through these healing journeys is that all we need is us. We have it already, everything that we need. And so, yeah, yeah it is a choice. It's a choice to relinquish some of that version of control that they may think they have over people and the manipulation that can come with victim self self victimization being a victim and instead deciding to step into their full higher self and um and and exploring what that means without all the noise yeah that was that was uh portia louder who we had on uh just this last week who and she was so great about how she just fell on her sword and she doesn't want to live as a victim but she made mistakes and uh, doesn't want to blame anybody else, but she, the new person she's become is really her authentic self, which is was such a beautiful message. So, Rachel, where where can people find you? Well, um, www.therayofjustice.com. That's my website. There are some um, inspirational, educational, informative videos on there. You can also access links to articles that I've written, other podcasts I've been on, of course, and mm-hmm. articles I've been featured in, and then um, TikTok. So I do entertaining and and informative TikToks where I talk about, um, you know, victim rights law, what that looks like, what can be done so that people, even if they can't access me or don't have access to another victim rights attorney, they are starting to know how to advocate for themselves and how to get, um, how to be a voice for themselves in the process and know what to expect from the criminal justice system and hold them accountable. So my TikTok is... Um, you know, tiktok.com at Rachel JD614. Rachel traditional spelling R A C H E L J D614. And again, the website is www.therayofjustice.com. The ray is like a ray of sunshine, but a ray of justice. So awesome. spelled just like that. Thank you. Awesome. Well, 
I cannot thank you enough today for this conversation. We The alignment has just been incredible since I've met you. And um, I know we have a lot more to, to do. I, I just have a feeling we're going to stay, that energetic connection is going to stay. So um, I thank you very much for being here today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Juliet. Absolutely. So everyone, just remember, everybody's got a story. And um, they don't always wear it on their sleeve. And we don't know what's happened in their past. So... Just don't forget to go out and spread some love. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at juliethuck.com. For more information on Juliet's 30-year career in the courtroom, visit us at juliethuck.com. There you can find your books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts. The content, opinions, and information shared by the hosts and guests on this podcast are not to be considered professional legal advice or therapeutic counseling. If you need assistance, consult with a licensed attorney or therapist if you are appearing as a witness, experiencing emotional trauma, or are involved in any sensitive legal matters. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Thank you.